We want to welcome everybody again to another episode of the Blue Banter Podcast, a podcast where we are striving to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and to serve young and aspiring pastors by gleaning wisdom from men with ministry experience. My name is Joe Smith. I am one of your co-hosts, pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. My name is Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church in Marion, Indiana, the promised land of the North. And we have a guest today. You're not going to just hear uh, Joe and I bloviate together, but we've got an actual pastor in the RPCNA. We have Colin Samuel, not Samuel or Samuel, but Samuel. So Colin, welcome to the Blue Banter. Thank you. It's good to be here with you, men. And by the way, it is Sam Ol. It's Sam Ol. So I said it wrong. It's, yeah, it just rhymes with camel. That's what we always tell people. <laughs> Samuel Camel. Yep. Yeah, we had uh, um, Ram Parkashbalan on uh, a few yeah. months ago, and I misspelled his name like five or six times. I kept having to go back and edit it um, even after we had posted the episode. So I'm just uh, I apologize for that. But no, you're good. I think half the denomination calls me that, so. That's mm-hmm. probably where you got it from. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're already making progress here with your goal of introducing pastors All to right. DNA. Now everybody knows how to pronounce my name. Mm-hmm. Right? So so yeah. it's it's Samol like Darth Maul. Samuel. Yep, just Samuel. Samuel. Yep. Samuel Camel. Samuel Camel. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, now that we've gotten that out of the way, um, <laughs> you, you've got uh, an interesting background. You've uh, you've done a few podcasts before, which is we wanted to have you on the podcast to begin with. But these podcasts uh, that you were on with uh, Coltish and some others really was like, oh, man, we really want to have this guy on here. Um, so we'll just jump right into the questions here. So, you know, you are um, a pastor in the RPCNA. The Lord has brought you out of darkness uh, and into light. But could you share with Joe and I and our listeners kind of your background with the occult? And then um, as a pastor, why is it important for both pastors and, you know, regular believers um, to have a robust understanding of uh, demonology, angelology, all of those kinds of things? Sure. Yeah. Well, when it comes to my testimony and my background and my background in the occult. I'll I'll just preface by saying, you know, I was raised in a household that was, uh, I was really blessed with the household I was raised in. It was a stable home. Whereas when I looked at a lot of my friends growing up, they lived in unstable homes. Um, Of course, a lot of parents who had divorced. So um, I'm very grateful for my upbringing, but Um, My parents, they were, um, so going back to my my background, um, I come from a Polish family and uh, Polacks are very thoroughly Catholic, but my parents had stopped going to church when I was about four. I have some very early memories of going to church, but we had stopped going for whatever reason, I think when I was about four or five. And so I grew up not really having a context for anything religious or metaphysical. So this wasn't anything that my parents pushed on me. It was just from the culture and what I learned in school. My understanding of the world was basically materialism, atomism, Mm -hmm. right? Everything is made up of little billiard balls that have bonded together over time in different ways. And I really didn't begin wrestling with the philosophical implications of that till about end of high school, I think probably the age where most people, well, I don't know if they do that anymore, but (laughs) most people around that age start to really think about 
the meaning of life and why does anything matter, right? Uh, um, so towards the end of high school, I had begun to get into the whole hippie culture. So of course, there was sort of in the late 90s, early 2000s, a revival of the sort of the 60s mentality, at least mm -hmm. where I grew up. We would make our own bell bottoms. Of course, we were experimenting with all the pharmaceuticals and going to shows. And that was sort of the crowd that I rolled with. And when you're in that milieu, there's always Eastern religion. Mm -hmm. And so a friend of mine had a book by the International Society, I think it's called, of Krishna Consciousness which is the Hare Krishnas. Mm. And the first religious text I ever read was the Bhagavad Gita. Mm. And at that time I was working in a party store um, that was run by Hindus. And they saw me reading it. They were like so encouraged that this white mm. boy was reading one of their books. And mm -hmm. um, I'd read the Quran too, because 9-11 happened my senior year. So I was trying to understand what that was all about. Uh, but the Bhagavad Gita really grabbed a hold of me. And the Bhagavad Gita, like most Eastern philosophy, really has some of the Platonic undertones of Plato with idealism and really asking these metaphysical questions. And, and I think in retrospect, that's what really blew me away. Not so much the religion, but the, the bigger questions and the answers to the bigger questions. And so from there, usually with Eastern mysticism, if, if you're, again, you know, me, white boy, discovering Eastern religions, you're not grounded in any one tradition, you usually end up falling into the new age. And mm -hmm. that's what happened. And so to, to not draw this out too long, basically my senior year, so it would have been going on 18 when I got into all this stuff till I think I was about, 19 or 20 or just before my 21st birthday i was really immersed in that world so a few years of my life and i had some disturbing experiences while on mushrooms and other psychedelics you know to tie this in with the subject we're gonna talk about a little bit before I had gotten into psychedelics, I was also always interested in the UFO subject because as a kid in the 90s with sightings and the X-Files, right, that was sort of in the atmosphere that if there's anything that's weird, that's real with, you know, materialistic presuppositions, it's the UFO thing. Mm -hmm. We were all sort of fascinated by those stories. But as I look deeper, um, you know, even back then, I was going to New Age websites that were saying these are not aliens, they're higher dimensional beings that we can contact through consciousness. And somehow that resonated with me. And, um, you know, I, I took mushrooms once after fasting for a week and chanting and all that. I was really fascinated by this idea. And basically, I had. I had some disturbing encounters that presented themselves in that way. Um, and for people who've taken those substances, it's hard to explain if you haven't, but 
there's a certain metaphysical reality to it that's beyond just I'm dreaming this up. Mm -hmm. This is something that really seems like it's coming from outside of my mind pressing in. And people who were present during that who weren't on drugs had experienced some weird things too. Um, and after that happened, I really dove into the UFO subject, trying to understand it and right, saw how much it was intertwined with the new age. I became very fascinated with, with the concept of there being disclosure, the idea that the government may one day finally tell us the truth and it would bring us into this new age of enlightenment. And so that was sort of the, the world I was m inhabiting um, in the way I thought for those two to three years. And, um, you know, you, you get into that enough and you, you find out there's no real solid answers. It's almost like, you know, people talk nowadays about going down the rabbit hole, mm -hmm. whether it's conspiracy theories, all these different things. They say, oh, I'm in a rabbit hole right now. I'm diving, diving deep. That, that very much was my experience back then. And what you find is the hole just goes deeper and deeper and there's nothing solid at the bottom of it. And so because of that, I sort of wanted to back away, especially from a lot of the disturbing experiences I had. I wanted to, I don't know if I want to be involved with this. I don't know where it's headed. I began to find myself fascinated with black magic and that disturbed me. And, um, so I just kind of told myself, I know this stuff's real. I don't want it to be real. I think I'm going to go back to being secular. Mm -hmm. Um, and my girlfriend at the time, she was raised in a liberal Methodist home. And she basically, you know, as I was wrestling through things, we we're having some deep talk about something. And she said, well, what about Christianity? And I said, well, I've never actually considered it. <laughs> Uh, I don't know anything about it. And um, the way I viewed Christianity was that it was shallow and um, it was, I viewed it almost like a folk religion for mm. the suburbs because that's what I saw. Everybody mm. I knew was a Christian went to a mega church. Seems no different than a concert. Um okay, if that works for you, but it doesn't really seem like there's any deep truth to it. So I began doing apologetics studies, like with Case for Christ. I read that book, some other things on the Old Testament. You know, is the Bible accurate? Is the Bible factual? And began to be convinced it was true. So I was wrestling with maybe becoming a Roman Catholic and I had grandparents encouraging me to go that route. But I was also, through my own research, becoming very convinced that we need to go with scripture alone. Um, but in that six-month process, right around, I think, my 21st birthday, I came across a website. Um, I think it's still out there. It's a real wacky fundamentalist website called Jesus is Savior. And it had a MP3 or a wave file where it said, you have to listen to the sermon. It was called Hell's Best Kept Secret. And I was like, well, that sounds provocative. Mm -hmm. And apparently I need to listen to this. So 
I burnt a CD. This was back in the day. <laughs> E-burners. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, put it in my, my uh, little folder for uh, listening to in the car. And I put it in and I was just captivated because I was wrestling with who is Jesus beyond just like a Hindu avatar, right? Hindus believe mm. that Brahman manifests himself in different ways. So, okay, incarnation is the one true God become flesh, but why did he have to die on the cross? And so when Ray Comfort explained the law and sin and substitutionary atonement, it just hit me like a freight train to where I had to pull over and get right with God. And yeah, I'd prayed the sinner's prayer, I think a month or two earlier. Um, but obviously I, I don't agree with that as being right. A conversion though, God can use it. But mm-hmm. I, I think at that moment was when I understood the gospel and had a credible profession of faith. And so spent two years as a, independent fundamentalist, KJV only Baptist, um, then went into the OPC. Then um, uh, when I moved out to California to go to seminary, I went into the RCUS, the German Reformed Church. And then I came into the RP um, in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd wrestled with the RPW and exclusive psalmody for a while. Right before I moved to California, the, this pastor now, he wasn't a pastor at that time, Kyle Borg, was leaving the OPC and took me out to lunch to tell me all about <laughs> why he's going into the RP and these convictions he has. And since he had that conversation, it was something I was just, what if that's true, right, about mm-hmm. worship? And so that's just an overview of my background, where I came from, uh, how I ended up here in the RP. When it comes to why I think it's important to have a robust understanding of demonology, um, I think first off, we should have a robust understanding, or at least we should take spiritual warfare in the demonic realm seriously, because scripture says and implies that we should take these things seriously. Uh, I I think of Colossians 2.15. This is one of those texts where, um, you know, I think we read it sometimes and we just hear it, but we don't really think about what it means. Uh, Paul says, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So that's describing our Lord's work on the cross, the previous verse right, talks about substitutionary atonement and how he, right, nailed our sins, our offenses against the law to the cross, in a sense, that that he took the punishment we deserve. But then he follows up saying that he also triumphed over the principalities and powers. So part of the good news is Christ's victory over this realm. And Right, we're, we're used to, and we should, first and foremost, when we're thinking about our piety, we should be mindful of and aware of our sin. We should be repentant in a repentant frame. As Luther said, the Christian life is a life of repentance. 
So we're used to the reality of our sin as modern American Christians. I think we aren't so familiar with the very real reality that, uh, I don't know if you guys saw the clip recently from Tucker Carlson at Turning Point USA. He was talking about the UFO subject and he said, I think these things have been here throughout human history and they surround us and it has to do with a battle between good and evil. Mm. Um, most people throughout most of history viewed the world that way. But but we we tend to view that as superstition. Yes, we're supposed to believe it's real because the Bible says so, but it doesn't really impact our daily life. Then I also, so so part of the gospel is Christ has freed us from this demonic realm and given us spiritual victory and principle. And then think about what Paul says in, a, um, in the, the book of Ephesians about the spiritual armor in Ephesians 6. Part of the Christian life is not only to walk in repentance, to walk in step with the spirit, but to also put on the armor um, because we wrestle not with flesh and blood. And if you look at the history of the church, the church, again, until the modern era, really took this seriously. So many Puritan manuals deal with spiritual warfare. Yes, and how Satan can tempt us, but also the more grosser manifestations of the enemy through things like possession and apparitions. Uh, William Perkins had his book on the damned art of witchcraft. And so... I think both for our growth and our progress in the Christian life, we need to be aware of the presence of the enemy. We need to be aware of his methods, his means, and we need to be aware of what God has given us and done for us and equipped us with so that we might um, fight a good fight. And I think we're going to find more and more people both Christians and non-Christians, as our culture goes further into spiritual darkness, we're going to find more and more people experiencing dark things very directly. And the worst thing you can do when someone has experienced something like that is to blow them off. Mm -hmm. Because then they'll go again to Rome because they take it seriously with all their exorcisms or they'll go to a Pentecostal preacher, right? What... How can God deliver me not only from my sin, but from these dark powers that I have experienced in my life? I think we'll begin to see more and more people who've had such encounters. Yeah, I think you're you're right. We we as uh, reform folk, you know, we we focus, you know, when you think of the, the three forms of attack, the world, flesh, and the devil, we put a lot of emphasis on on the flesh and and even the world as well. But we we almost completely ignore uh, the demonic attack as well. Yes, I agree. Yep. Mm -hmm. I think um, I was talking to Keith Evans one time and you, you mentioned Perkins. I think Perkins, I mean, often we're being attacked by all three enemies at the same time in many ways. Um, but, but Perkins, I think, argues for uh, seeing the devil as, as the prime enemy in the sense that he's, a, he's the one that's always shooting the fiery arrows that are that is that is stoking the flesh and he's the one behind uh the temptations of the world and so though there's three enemies i think keith was saying that that perkins argues for a primacy of the devil and so 
in a sense, it's it's not as if we're just forgetting about or downplaying one of three, but but the primary, the mm-hmm. the main one, uh, and he's laughing about it. I agree. I agree completely. And yeah, I I also agree with uh, with Keith on that. Um, that I think we do tend to view probably the flesh as the primary enemy. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely the most existentially present enemy because, right, this is an internal battle. But but who, when we've experienced a season of victory and progress in our sanctification, who is the one that comes at us with a lot of skill and mind games to get us to willingly enter into a period of backsliding it's the enemy right he's got all sorts of ways to come at us sideways so that we we stumble or even backslide at times mm-hmm. uh we were going through uh in our midweek bible study here we we're going through first peter and we we just finished up and uh you know chapter five talks about you know being uh, watchful and sober-minded because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour talks about resisting him but then in uh verse 10 of uh, chapter five he says after you have suffered a little while the god of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So when you look at those four things, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, and you particularly think about, you know, the devil being the father of all lies, it's like the the devil is coming at you to question, um, you know, are you truly saved? Really, you think you're saved? Uh, No, we are saved. Christ has restored us from damnation to regeneration. He's confirmed us. We we will not lose. So um, there's all kinds of really... um, more supernatural things that I think we're going to talk about here in a bit, but also just the idea that, you know, the demonic attack is getting us to even question our very salvation. Yet Jesus has restored, confirmed and strengthened and established us. Um, I think the, this idea of having a robust uh, demonology will continue to come out uh, through the rest of our discussion. So Joe, I'm ready uh, for you to take the next question unless you've got more to talk about. No, I mean, I could go, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd be interested in talking all sorts about what, what's Mm -hmm. already been said, but yeah, trying to keep, keep the flow of things here. Um, so, so having, having unpacked a little bit kind of the new age and your background with the occult again, Aaron kind of already mentioned it. Uh, you, you did a 10 part series on, uh, I think the cultish podcast you said that, that I just found was fascinating. I don't even remember who sent it along to me. And then I sent it along, uh, to Aaron and, and yeah, I mean, we were just, I thought it was great. Uh, and so would recommend anybody going over and, and checking that out on the cultish podcast, look for Colin's, uh, 10 part series on UFOs and the, the occult, but in many ways, um, as hard and of a task as it's going to be in, in what little time we have, um, how do UFOs and the occult intersect? And in some ways, I guess what we're kind of looking for too, what, what would you say are some of the main takeaways from, uh, the 10 part series that you did? Yeah. Um, I, I think that first question, um, I think even six months to a year ago, that was not a harder question to answer, but I think it was a harder question that people would ask of me because they they knew I was doing this project and they had seen some of my prior podcasts. And 
you know, people are like, okay, I've seen this in the news, but what does this have to do with religion and all that? And, and I think just even in the last six months, um, I think with more and more people in the wider culture, including again, like I mentioned, Tucker Carlson recently, it's clicking that this is not a phenomenon about nuts and bolts spaceships that have come across the galaxy. But to just back up and, and answer that question in a very simple way. Um, if you go into any Barnes and Noble bookstore and go to the front desk and say, I want to pick up a book on UFOs, usually they'll ask for a title. So maybe one of Tom DeLonge's books that he came out with recently. Um, and say, so look it up. They take you back. What section do you think you're going to end up at? It's not going to be the science fiction section. It's not going to be the science section. It's not going to be right current affairs or anything like that. You will be going over to the new age section. Mm -hmm. And in the new age section, there will be a subsection on UFOs, everything from ancient aliens, themed books to like the book I picked up 20 years ago, the Palladian workbook about how to make psychic contact with these positive beings from the Palladians, uh, the Pallades star system, right? You'll find everything from conspiracy, government cover-up UFO books to that kind of stuff. And even if you pick up the more conspiracy oriented okay what does the government know um those sorts of books when you read them most authors will say it's not clear that these are aliens in fact most researchers will end up coming to the conclusion this is something interdimensional is what they call it mm -hmm. and they they see the spiritual connection and as I documented in the podcast series, the reason for that is, is if you just look at the history of the subject, it's been tied in with occultism and occultists. So um, Tom DeLong in, in his nonfiction book, he begins um, his first nonfiction book that's supposed to be part of his disclosure plan talking about a group called the nine, which was a bunch of East coast blue blood type families. I think maybe the DuPonts or something were involved. All these rich elite families. Not to be confused they, with RP blue bloods, just by the yeah, way. Yeah. Not, yeah. not RP blue bloods, blue bloods <laughs> in the sense of mm -hmm. uh, part of the uh, mm -hmm. Washington, you know, establishment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to make <laughs> be accused of accusing people of things. Mm -hmm. Um, channeling um, a entity called the nine with the help of a escaped Nazi, which is, and it's a true story. They, they had this meeting at one of their um, summer homes up in Maine, I believe, and received these communications through a Nazi channeler mm -hmm. about these beings orbiting our planet who are going to bring us into this higher age of enlightenment. Um. And so when you read the literature on this stuff, it's just, it's tied in with things like that channeling. It's tied in with occultists, occultism. 
the contactees, those who actually make direct contact with the phenomenon, almost always have a religious message. Those who've studied the phenomenon see it at work in things like the Fatima apparitions of the early 1900s. In fact, Jacques Vallée, who I mentioned in my podcast series, he actually considers the Our Lady of Fatima um, apparition a UFO sighting because it has all the, the, the key ingredients, a light dancing around in the sky, even some disc-shaped objects that you know, flew around over the crowd. And when it went over people, though it was raining out and they were wet, they would end up dry. And the entity that appeared, um, the, the children that first encountered her or it initially didn't call her Mary, just called her the lady. And she was surrounded by these three foot tall beings. Um, which again, it sounds a lot like some of the encounters that the contactees had in the 1950s who claimed that they were in touch with people from Venus or other places. Uh, even Mormonism, people have tied Joseph Smith mm -hmm. to going out in the woods and having entity encounters and new religious revelations. Um, it's, it's all the same phenomenon. Um, so, so, when you look at the big picture beyond what is normally presented to us in the popular media about this subject, it's very clearly religious in nature, spiritual. And I do that with quotes, right? Mm -hmm. It's not true spirituality. It's religious. It's spiritual in nature. And it always is either preceded by someone's involvement in the occult or it drives them into the occult, having had the experience to where even people who just witness UFOs don't even experience the entities themselves. They uh, walk away from that encounter with a changed perspective that again, usually leads them into Eastern mysticism. There's a series on Netflix. I highly recommend everybody watch. And as a Christian, you don't need to have much discernment in viewing it. It's called Encounters. It came out in September. And that is the main theme of this. And, and Steven Spielberg, his studio is the one that put this together. Um, so it's a very mainstream documentary. But, but the main theme was that this is a religious phenomenon. Hmm. And people talk about how when this object hovered in front of them, they felt that they were at one with it. And they just couldn't get it out of their mind. And it sent them on a spiritual search. So again, even people who didn't have a conversation with an entity, they're they're having their worldview transformed through through these encounters. So that that's how it ties in with the occult and that was the main thing I was trying to break down in my 10 part series is that not only is this real, okay, this is not just hallucinations. It's not just um, the government covering up secret technology, though that has gone on. They've used this subject to confuse people and they've used it as a cover for things they are working on. Um, but this is a real phenomenon, 
and the, the phenomenon as it presents itself is clearly spiritual um, in nature and largely demonic, though, of course, other things could be going on. And I also wanted people to walk away with a sense of urgency in showing that there is a push for disclosure. There is a push to mainstream all of this, to bring out to the public things that have been hidden. And we've seen that over the last five years or so. And we're going to continue seeing it. So I guarantee if we were to speak in a year or two um, about this, we would be talking about new things that have come out mm. <laughs> and reflecting on that. This isn't just a, a one and done thing and it's going to go away. Um, I'm firmly convinced as I've been involved with this subject over the last five years, investigating it, being even in contact with certain people who are involved with this push for disclosure at various levels, that this is going forward. And um, it's not something that's going to let up. So, yeah, a two, two questions. I'll, I'll go with the one most closely tied to what you just said and then back up a little bit. Um, so, so far as you can tell or, or educated uh, educated what's the end game of, of the disclosure uh what what's what's the point of of doing this and in the in the way even that it's been done as you unpack in your podcast very strategically and maybe you said it, it's been a while since i listened to the podcast but what 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 is the goal of of those who are pushing for disclosure well i think the goal, there could be multiple agendas at play. And I think with anything like this, you know, when people start thinking about conspiracy theories and right, that used to be a way to sort of dismiss someone, you're a conspiracy theorist. And nowadays it's like, if you don't believe in some conspiracy theories, you're just written off as not mm -hmm. a very reflective individual. <laughs> um, so when it comes to the subject of right agendas and things coming out of the intelligence agencies, which this largely is, uh, my rule of thumb is that assume there are, while there might be a broad agreement on certain things, they're just like anything else are different parties involved who have a different take on whatever it is that they're doing in the best way to go about it. And I am convinced there is not one unitary agenda at play here. What I think is going on is the government for various reasons covered this up in the 1960s, mostly because of the realities of the cold war and um, not being sure exactly what this was. They, they didn't want to lay their cards out to the Russians on what they knew because they didn't know what the Russians knew and what they may have developed from studying this. And so just like with any arms race, you keep your cards to your chest. And so to lie to your enemies, you also got to lie to your own people. And 
that is largely what drove the cover-up, though I think other things started to happen in the 70s and the 80s that, that further solidified it. Um, I think with the advent of the internet, the independent media, with social media, and just anybody can get a platform, I think in the 2010s, the decision was made by multiple parties across different intelligence agencies and government agencies that we need to start being transparent about this. Number one, public trust in the government is an all-time low. And so if this comes out and we aren't the ones who told the truth about it, then something this big, we can never regain trust with the public again. So uh, Tom DeLong himself has said this when he was brought into those meetings that I narrated in about, I think it was about the 2014 time period with uh, higher ups at Lockheed Skunk Works and the CIA and other places. Uh, basically, he pitched to them that we can slowly roll this out, educate the public and do it in a way that makes them sympathetic to you so that as it slowly comes out, um, there can also be a narrative that makes you guys look like the good guys. Um, the, the example he has always given is a terrorist attack. Well, Chris Mellon, who from the Pittsburgh area, of course, you know, the Mellon family, um, he's one of these disclosure advocates and his family has been big in the CIA for a long time. He's told the story when he was working in the White House that uh, he knew about a uh, plan that uh, supposedly terrorists had smuggled a nuke into the D.C. area. And him and a handful of people were told about it and told to evacuate their families. Hmm. And they, they couldn't tell anybody. And he's I think he said this on the Joe Rogan podcast. And, you know, he's sitting here packing up, leaving. He can't tell his neighbors. Right. And thinking they're going to be fried here in the next couple of days. Um, but, you know, you also don't want to make it public because you're also trying to foil the terrorists. And so you can't lay your cards out that, you know, it's about to happen and that you're on them. Um, and then, as he said, it ended up being bad intelligence, thankfully. And so it wasn't going down. But he has used that, as has Tom DeLong, as an example of right, the government doesn't know what's going on with this phenomenon. So rather than panic the public, and Tom DeLong has pitched it in the way that uh, basically the government was also afraid of letting the phenomenon become aware that we were aware of it for various reasons, mm -hmm. um, which is why the government went super black in how it studied it and put it deep underground not physically, but just as a government program. So whether that's true or not, that's the pitch is, hey, these are our government was just has been trying to keep us safe been trying to figure this out. They have some answers now. And so now they're willing to talk and let us show you what this is about and why we made the decisions we did. So I, I think it's partly for the government to save face. Um, uh, Again, trust in the government's at an all-time low. But I think there's other agendas at play as well. Um, and if, if you are someone like me, 
when I, before I was converted and you are into this and you're convinced that this phenomenon might unlock the truth about reality and who we are. Well, if you're a true believer, that's also why you want to bring it out, right? The same way that we want to evangelize unbelievers into the truth of Christianity. Uh, those within the government who've been wrapped up with this, they, they probably don't like living a double life. They would like to be able to openly talk about this. Um, so that's, there, there's a lot more that could be said, but it would get very, uh, I think we'd get very sidetracked into rabbit holes. <laughs> mm -hmm. no, um, but it is a good question. Yeah, no, that's good. One one other follow-up on this one real quick for me. So let's say somebody goes from here and they listen to your 10-part podcast and uh, you've utterly convinced them of the connection and the intersection between uh, UFOs and the occult. How then should they uh, make use of that information and that teaching in their life? Like what's the payoff now of being persuaded of that? How can they use that to decipher what they're hearing, what they're seeing, so on and so forth. Yeah, well, I think the first the first thing that we need to recognize, and I touch on this in the series, it's in episode six, is the um, observation Jacques Vallée made that really the purpose of the phenomenon seems to be to change and alter beliefs. At rock bottom, if you study the phenomenon across history, just the open source information, let's forget about what the government knows, the things that we can publicly ascertain from, from, from the record, the, the point of this phenomenon in his evaluation, and most agree, is partly to alter our beliefs. Now, what that means, that depends upon what your worldview is. Um, as Christians when we look at the warning that in the last days many will be given over to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons i think the the first practical application about really taking the mask off of this phenomenon and showing what it really is is that now you're inoculated from um the the main thrust of the phenomenon which is to make you question the reliability of the Bible. And, you know, I've known Christians who have gotten into this subject, you know, they see things on the History Channel. And now I don't know what to make of the Old Testament. What, what if that was just these entities? What if Jesus, the virgin birth, people talk about how they're abducted, and uh, then they end up pregnant, and they don't know how they got pregnant? Well, what if what if that was what the virgin birth was? Right? Um there's an attack upon the authority of scripture usually with, with this subject. There's usually a promotion of Gnosticism. So seeing that from the get go keeps you from going down that rabbit hole without even realizing you've entered it. And I think many people have done that. I've, I've seen many believers get into conspiracy theories, look into the UFO subject thinking it's nuts and bolts, aliens stuff. And then next thing you know, they're, they're questioning the Bible and, you know, wondering if, you know, occultism might not be true. Mm -hmm. 
So the first thing is, 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 is knowing the truth of what this phenomenon is will keep us from being led astray. I think that the second is it's of an apologetic value because more and more unbelievers are talking about this and are taking that religious, anti-scripture, anti-God bait, hook, line, and sinker. And are beginning to say, well, no, I, I believe, yeah, the Bible probably did happen, but it it had to do with this stuff, right? Not not with the triune God of Scripture revealing himself. And I'll just give you a couple anecdotes here that, you know, I'm working now. I'm not in full-time ministry. I'm working in the auto industry. And in the last six months, I've had three higher-ups Um approach me about this subject. Uh, one, one man um, comes from a Greek Orthodox background. This is before my podcast came out. He knew nothing about me. I told him I, I was a pastor and he immediately pulls me in his office and he goes, I have theological questions about Christianity and this UFO and alien stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm beginning to think maybe there's a God who created everything, but they created us. Mm. And he told me that growing up on his farm, his dad used to see these entities at the back of his property entering into a mountain. They would float Mm. across uh, the pasture, you know, relatively frequently. He would witness this. Mm. And, um, you know, this is something his dad experienced. And so it's something that he was wrestling with, with what he saw on TV. Another man, after my podcast came out, Um, He heard about it and he came up to me and told me about how in the eighties he was going to some meeting down in Alabama. He flew in late and out in the middle of nowhere, he saw a craft and it started following him. And then next thing he knew he was further down the road two hours later and he saw the craft in front of him and it left. Hmm. And you know, he told me that he used to wake up with triangle burns behind his ears and other things. And this is not, this is a very accomplished, successful man, right? This is not, you know, the janitor, no offense to janitors, but I'm just saying like, in the company, he's, 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 he's a very successful person. And um, he told me that, that he thought maybe it was a deception. So I referred Hmm. him to the podcast. And then another guy was in special forces and um, uh, he didn't know about the podcast either, but we used to talk about Joe Rogan and stuff because he listens to all that. And in the eighties, he was in a country um, in plain clothes. I won't say where, Um, but uh, he said that the intelligence they were receiving from Washington DC was coming from remote viewers the psychic spies mm-hmm. that I mentioned in mm-hmm. episode seven. Mm-hmm. And he said it was scary how accurate they were. Mm. And so again, I referred him to the podcast said, Hey, I actually talked to a guy who blew the whistle uh, on that. So uh, um, having this just as an, in your arsenal as something you can engage with from a Christian worldview perspective will be helpful because number one, more people have had these experiences than you might think. (laughs) 
And, and I've learned that recently from these conversations that came out of seemingly nowhere. Hmm. And, um, you know, it can lead into bigger questions about, right, the deeper metaphysical questions we all have. Mm -hmm. um, same thing I did when, before I was a Christian, right? And then it eventually, being into that, I ended up finding Christ or Christ found me. Well, we can be instruments in his hands. Uh, when people experience these things or wrestling with them, you know, we can have that contact point with some answers and some way to engage with them. And then, of course, to talk about what's really important, which is their their eternal destiny and um, the reality of Christ and his entrance into the world and what he's doing in this world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. I think uh, we'll go to the next question here in just a second. And then maybe, Joe, we can uh, hit the mystery question here. Before I hit the, uh, the this question, though, I do want to tell you, Colin, I did janitorial work for uh, for some time. So for uh, all the janitors out there, I take no offense. All right. I, I did too. So okay. all yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. A lot of people are probably even leaning while they listen to uh, the podcast yeah. here. Um, so this, this, janitor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, this dovetails into pretty much what you were just saying, but uh, what would be some warnings and encouragements for those who want to grow in their under like their biblical understanding of demonology, not, not just the whole UFO phenomenon and all that kind of stuff, yeah. um, but, but demonology in general. So warnings and encouragements. Mm -hmm. um, so my first warning is to first off, be careful. Um, as, as one person put it to me, and this is somewhat of a proverb in the UFO community, when you become aware of the phenomenon, the phenomenon becomes aware of you. Um, That's and, not ominous at all. <laughs> yeah, not at all. And I've just side note, I, I might go more public with this down the road. Uh, a man that I was talking to for a long time is at the center of this there's apparently a movie going to be made about him um i talked to him for several years and um one night merely interacting with him online caused some things to occur in my household with my kids and they weren't aware that i was having this conversation with this guy but it, it was like out of a movie mm -hmm. um so you do need to be careful especially if, if you're close to anybody who's close to anything. So you need to be in prayer, number one, right? You need to be in prayer. You, you need to uh, be in the word. You want to avoid being overtly fascinated with the subject to where it takes your eyes off Christ. Mm -hmm. I actually have a um, quote from this book, and this is a book I will highly recommend, Unholy Spirits by mm -hmm. Gary North. Um. It is the best treatment I've seen of the occult from a Christian and Vantillian perspective. But he he has this warning that has always stuck with me. And it stuck with me when I considered researching this again and putting this stuff out there. He says, warning, this book is not designed to be a source of excitement or titillation or weird experiences. It is designed to be a part of a training program for Christian reconstruction. Okay, he's a theonomist, so mm -hmm. forgive yep. him for that. Yep. I am not playing games. I am not inviting people to play games. I am calling people into a war, a war which is rapidly escalating, in which if God-fearing men refuse to fight, the West is going to lose. Thus, I am interested in recruiting people who are willing to become dedicated trained troops, comparable to those who are 
who marched into Canaan under Joshua. I am interested in recruiting officers. This book is a manual for officers candidate school. It requires a degree of self-discipline to read it. Those who are unwilling to do their homework as they read about the rise of new age occultism should avoid the whole topic. Dabbling in the occult, even intellectually, is not recommended. It is like visiting a free fire zone between armies. Go there only if you have a good reason. Inform yourself about occultism only if you intend to do something about it. A battlefield is no place for civilians. Mm. Um, and if you talk to anybody, I remember when I was first converted, the Christian bookstore I worked at, my boss, he had done a study into spiritual warfare. And he said, since I've done this, I'm coming under spiritual attack. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so first off, you can't treat it lightly. You need to enter in with the armor. But I think that we can, um, especially if we are going to enter in because we are seeking to maybe reach out to family and friends who are into this stuff, or we just want to inform ourselves so that we can be aware of the influence in our culture and resist it ourselves, protect our kids from it. Um, right. And just be ready to respond, just being in general informed. Um, if we're going to approach the subject seeking to do those things, I think we can also approach it with encouragement because as I read earlier in Colossians 2, Christ has um, achieved victory over the principalities and powers, right? And, and so there is that ominous warning when you become aware of the phenomenon, the phenomenon becomes aware of you, right? Or as Christians have experienced, if you study spiritual warfare, you might find yourself in the midst of spiritual warfare Nevertheless, the one whom we serve, the one whom we look to, the one whom we rest in and trust in and follow, he has achieved the victory for us. And the enemy cannot touch us if we are in him. And so though we are to wage a good warfare, we have the high ground and we know who wins. We've read the end of the book and we know who wins, right? Amen to that. Um, no, this has all been great. I assume, I mean, it like has me wanting to go back and listen to your podcast again. So mm -hmm. I assume for any who haven't heard it yet, this will be enough to, uh, to whet their appetites to go listen to it. So we do always end with a fun mystery theological question, and I'm going to tack on one extra for you. That's not actually theological in nature. It's just pure curiosity <laughs> to see, to see your take on it after after I ask our main theological question. So um, kind of with these little theological questions, we like to try and settle uh, things that are debated and yet um, easy, easy to disagree or over or discuss. So anyways, first Samuel chapter 28, we have the episode of the witch of Endor bringing up Samuel. And so you're probably aware there's some debate amongst uh, Christians on this as to if it's actually Samuel who is brought up or if it's some demonic deception uh, of simply imitating Samuel to further deceive Saul in some way or whatever. And so we're curious, what is Colin Samuel's thought on Samuel in 
this whole Witch of Endor episode? Is it really Samuel or is it not? All right. Well, yeah, I guess that's very fitting. given. Hmm. <laughs> Colin, we'll, we'll be honest with you. We came up with that one knowing that we were going to have you on. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, well, I've gone back and forth on this. I, I think I started off with the majority opinion that it was a demonic familiar spirit that God in his providence allowed to um, be raised up to essentially pronounce judgment against Samuel, right? We, we see in the historical books, it, it talks about a lying spirit being sent from the Lord, right? To, to uh, the prophets so that, right, a, a wrong prophecy was given or, or at least not an accurate one. Um, so that, that, that was my initial perspective. Then I, I think it was Augustine who held, or maybe it wasn't him, another church father held that it was Samuel who was brought back as a special providence of God to pronounce judgment. And that I would say is the most natural reading of the text because it does refer to him as Samuel and Samuel, uh, you get the sense, didn't think very highly of Saul for good reason. <laughs> and he seems annoyed that he's been awakened and, and raised to be brought to Saul in that context. And so that seems to fit. However, I think that um, in looking at it and in reading some of the reformers and the Puritans on this, they point out that the prophecy wasn't exactly accurate um, with what transpired. And that would fit with this whole idea that demons can predict the future with greater accuracy because they have superior intellects to us, but they don't know the future. It is not laid out before them like the future is before our Lord. And uh, also in looking at it in context with the Hebrew um, admonition against seeking familiar spirits, while it would be poetic justice for God to somehow in a special providence, bring Samuel back to pronounce this judgment. I think it's more natural that God in his providence allowed this demonic spirit to one last time torment Saul before his destruction. And so I've, I've gone back to the majority opinion and, but I, I don't think it's one of those things at the end of the day that's going to make someone a heretic or uh, I think the application of the text remains the same, regardless of what you think happened there with the spiritual mechanics, so to speak. But yeah, I, I'm going to go with it's a, it was a demon impersonating Samuel. Man, you had us on a roller coaster there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one last curiosity question that's tied into this subject. So this <laughs> this all stems um 
I was watching a show. I don't even remember what channel it was on. If it was a History Channel thing or whatever, something about Bigfoot. Okay, and at the end of the show, they try and correlate Bigfoot with UFOs. And then I um, that uh, a Hebrew word for demon, serim can mean hairy demon or it comes from a root hairy. And so after we listened to your podcast, I text Aaron one day and I said something about Hebrew root serim means hairy one or hairy demon. Bigfoot it's associated with UFOs. And so I was just curious if if in uh, I don't I wish I could remember what all this show was saying, but numerous oh and I text I don't remember what I text him. There are a couple historical accounts from the 1800s where a Bigfoot sighting was closely associated with a UFO sighting. Yeah, so all I, I know just, is you texted that to me while I was doing sermon prep, and I did not appreciate that distraction. Yeah, yeah, he told me to leave <laughs> him alone. So I was just curious, again, have you come across any association between Bigfoot and UFOs? Yes, and uh, I, I know a, a friend of mine who has witnessed several Bigfoots is of the opinion that it is a creature, not a apparition or anything. Um, but I've also heard plenty of accounts where they disappear before people's eyes. And so I, I have seen the connection. It, it is a well-known connection that, that sightings have occurred with lights in the sky or strange luminescence going through the wooded areas where they're, they're, they're sighted. And I've never heard that though, about hairy, hairy demons. I will say that, um, you know, closely related to the Bigfoot phenomenon is there's also the dogmen, which is similar. So it's like an upright dog looking hmm. creature and a biography about Zwingli that came out in the last couple of years. I've been meaning to read. It looks quite good. I just read the intro on Kindle as a free, you know, sample. And it said Zwingli lived in an era where people believed, you know, talk, placing him in his context. He believed in lived in an era where people believed that the woods were inhabited by dog headed demons. Hmm. Right. So so you, you do see these things talked about throughout history from all sorts of people, even from Christians. And um, I think most of them took it to be yeah, demonic, demonic type entities. And I, I certainly see a connection, though. If there's a physical creature as well, it wouldn't surprise me. Sure. But yeah, that's a yeah. whole other discussion. Yeah, no, that's good. Yep. You better you better land us, Aaron, before I ask some other. <laughs> yeah, la questions. land us somewhere solid. <laughs> yeah, well, this has uh, been another episode of the Blue Banter podcast. Our guest has been Colin Samuel, like camel. Uh, an ordained pastor in the RPCNA. And before I uh, totally close this out, uh, I want to read a little bit of a scripture passage here from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he will he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So even as we consider uh, the demonic realm, it's good for us to consider that these are creatures and that Jesus is ruling and reigning, that he will put his enemies in subjection to his feet and that he will protect his elect. If you like this episode, you can rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast catcher you use. You can share this episode on social media. If you have a question you'd like us to ask the pastors that we have on this podcast, you can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you want us to ask, uh, or I always screw this part up every single time, Joseph. If you want us to interview your pastor, you can email us the name of your pastor and his contact information again at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God.